welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to this week's episode of Mono Real Radio. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And a special thanks to Pat Gessner, a good friend of ours and a friend of the show. He's a voiceover artist. He's a radio personality. He loves movies. If you're a horror movie person, you can find him at the Shred Shack. He did our intro. He did our outro. A really talented guy. Thanks, Pat. Thanks, Pat. We're back this week, back from our recent Twitter suspension. I really can't believe we're saying... At the same time, I can. That was pretty ridiculous. Yeah, Monoreal Radio, for those of you who have followed our social media, was suspended for like the first four days that the show existed over the most ridiculous thing. So, like, they give you the option when you're creating your profile to enter a date of birth, and they said you can enter the date that your business or your brand launched as your date of birth, and we were so excited. We're like, great. We're going to we're going to make the date of birth the day of the first show. So August 14th, 2018. And it suspends us for being under the age of 13. I, I have to say that's kind of ridiculous on Twitter's and I don't even know how we had the option to select 2018 if it was going to put the ban on us. If you have to be at least 13, then it, it should have backed it up so that that was the first year you could have chosen. Well, we discussed this, though, and if if that were the case, anybody who was eight years old and under would just set that as their date of birth and everybody could get on Twitter. Right. Unbelievable. I was was dumbfounded. Well, we're back up and running now. We've been tweeting, so give us a follow. Speaking of follows, uh, I want to thank Reddit user BlankBlix. I hope I didn't just butcher your name there. Uh, We got a comment on last week's episode. It was actually a really, really helpful comment. Um, I had mentioned that I felt like Prince Eric was the first Disney prince to actually do anything. And I stand corrected because Prince Philip slayed a dragon, which I completely forgot. That would be Prince Philip from Sleeping Beauty, and he slays Maleficent in dragon form. So I stand corrected. However, I will stand by what I said about Eric being the first prince that we actually have a reason to care about. Because I think he's got a lot more personality other than being known as just a prince and royalty and being heroic for no other reason than that he's a prince. Eric is at least working and he goes back for the dog. And that scores a lot of points with me. So I'm going to stand by that one. But thank you, Blank Blicks, for taking the time to write in. Yes, and thank you for anybody else who has commented on, on the Reddit or on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook, any of them. Just thank you for the interaction. We do appreciate it. This week's episode uh, has gotten a lot of attention because I guess people just love The Jungle Book. It's not just me who's who, who loves this movie so much. I mean, this is my favorite Disney animated movie, and I guess there are more people out there that feel this way than, than I had even thought. It's a classic. It's another classic. It is a classic. It takes place in the Indian jungle. It starts when Bagheera finds Mowgli in a basket, Bagheera being a Black Panther, and Mowgli being a man cub, he's a child, a baby, uh, finds him in a basket. He brings him to uh, to a den of wolves to, to be raised because they can't leave the child by himself in the jungle. He won't survive. Well, the wolves raise Mowgli for uh, for about 10 years, um, and then the elders meet at Elder uh, at Council Rock to decide that Mowgli must leave and go back to the man village because Shere Khan 
the tiger has returned and has vowed to kill the boy because he hates man. And he wants to kill Mowgli because he doesn't want Mowgli to grow up to become a man because he fears man's gun and man's fire. Uh, Bagheera offers to take him to the man village, which Mowgli doesn't really want to do at all. Uh, on their journey, they have a run-in with Ka, uh, a giant snake who hypnotizes Bagheera and Mowgli. Uh, he then tries to eat Mowgli, but they're able to escape after Mowgli pushes Ka off a tree branch and Ka retreats. The next morning, they meet the AM Dawn Patrol. It's a herd of elephants who march and report back on what they find uh, while also, quote-unquote, landscaping the jungle. They're taking down trees and high grass, and they do so in a military fashion. Uh, Bagheera explains that he's taking the man-cub back to the man-village, which Mowgli continues to fight him on. Uh, Bagheera decides <clears throat> excuse me, uh, to leave Mowgli as he is frustrated with the boy who refuses to listen. It's at that point that Mowgli meets Baloo a sloth bear who agrees that Mowgli should be able to stay in the jungle and decides to act as sort of like his de facto guardian. While learning about the bear necessities, monkeys show up and they kidnap Mowgli in a good old-fashioned Disney snatch and grab. Uh, you've seen this a hundred times where it's either it's a treasure map or it's a character uh, where the, the, the antagonist has it and then the protagonist has it and they just kind of trade, trade the item back and forth. Um, that happens here, and it's a very, very funny, uh, very funny scene. Uh, Mowgli is then brought to the ruins where he meets King Louie, an orangutan who wants to evolve. He wants to be a man. He wants to create fire, and he thinks that Mowgli can show him how to do this because he's human, and he offers to keep Mowgli in the jungle if he agrees. Now, at this point, Bagheera and Baloo, they try to infiltrate to rescue Mowgli, and Baloo dresses as an ape in drag <laughs> with a hula skirt, um, but is soon found out. You get another really funny snatch-and-grab scene, uh, which leads to the ruins being left in crumbles. Baloo, Bagheera, and Mowgli escape. That night, as Mowgli sleeps, Bagheera explains to Baloo that Shere Khan will kill Mowgli if not returned to the man village, and uh, reluctantly, Baloo agrees that he's going to bring him there because he wants Mowgli's, you know, he wants him, he wants the best intentions for the boy. He wants to keep him alive. Baloo uh, tells Mowgli that he has to go back to the man village. Mowgli, feeling betrayed, runs away. We're then introduced to Shere Khan as he stalks a deer. As he's about to pounce on his prey, the dawn patrol comes by, scaring the deer off. Uh, Bagheera stops the patrol to explain that Mowgli has run away, which Khan overhears. The patrol eventually agrees to help find Mowgli to save him from Shere Khan. Uh, Mowgli has another run-in with Ka, who promises Mowgli uh, that he won't have to leave the jungle uh, if only he trusts in him. But in other words, what he's trying to do is, is he's still trying to eat Mowgli, and that's the way he's going to keep him in the jungle. Um, Khan shows up and instructs Ka to inform him uh, if he sees Mowgli, because at this point, he showed up, he's asking questions about the man-cub, and, and Ka swears up and down he hasn't seen him. Uh, when Khan leaves, Mowgli again pushes Ka off the branch, and then Ka runs off. Mowgli then encounters a group of vultures who feel bad for him, as it's clear that he is upset. They feel a connection to him, as no one wants to claim them, as no one really wants to claim Mowgli at this point, other than Baloo. After explaining what good friends are for, Shere Khan arrives, whom Mowgli refuses to run from. Khan leaps to attack Mowgli, but Baloo arrives just in time to protect him. 
As the two fight and chase Mowgli, a storm arrives, and the vultures carry Mowgli away to protect him. A lightning strike then creates fire uh, to a branch, which Mowgli then uh, tied to Khan's tail. Khan runs off, but Baloo is feared dead. Bagheera arrives to give Baloo his eulogy when uh, Baloo regains consciousness. The three then uh, stumble across the man village where Mowgli sees a girl for the first time. Um, she's flirting with him. She's giving him the eye. And uh, Mowgli, you know, she's, she's down there retreating water. She's, that's what she's doing. She's bringing water back to the man village. And she's kind of giving the eye flirting with him, as I said before. Um, he's kind of stuck in between looking at her and looking back at Bagheera and Baloo. Baloo's telling him to come back. Bagheera's saying, no, go. And Mowgli just gets this really, like, dumb grin on his face. And he turns and he looks at them and he shrugs and he follows the girl back to the man village. Uh, Baloo and Bagheera at that point walk off into the sunset and return to the jungle, and that's that's the premise of the film. The film is from 1967. Um, based on a book by Rudyard on, Kipling? Yes, based on a book by Rudyard Kipling. Now, the Kipling book, obviously, is much darker than this film. Uh, this is one of those movies that is very much Disney-fied, but does so in a way where, for the most part, it still holds up to this day. It does, but I have to say, upon the recent viewing, I do feel like it left me with more questions than answers. But that's why we're doing this show, and we're going to talk through it. So the the story itself, the film is narrated by Bagheera, which I love, because it helps pass the time and give backstory in a very quick manner. I also think that he was the perfect character choice to do this, because... Yes, he is the one who initially finds Mowgli in the jungle, but it was just a really smart choice because he kind of acts as his guardian. I think if it was one of the wolves or Baluey, then it wouldn't have pushed the story along in quite the same way. Um, Bagheera is kind of in Mowgli's corner in a different way, and he's got this task to carry out to get him to the man village. So I think that's just the perfect role for the narrator to have that kind of a role in Mowgli's life and Mowgli's journey. Right. Um, but there is some nice snappy dialogue uh, throughout the entire film. The interaction with the characters and the, re the relationship amongst the characters, in my opinion, is very believable. It comes off very natural. That's actually one of the things that I sort of question. Um, not so much the relationships and the friendships that are built. But as far as this plays into the story, I feel like all of the characters are in close enough proximity where they know each other. Like every seems, everybody seems to know Bagheera as he's walking through the, you know, as he's taking Mowgli on his journey. But I feel like they don't all know Mowgli. Now, granted, Mowgli has been growing up in a wolf den. So maybe he's been kind of hidden and protected. But... When everybody finds out there's a man cub in the jungle, it's like news and a surprise to them. And I feel like if you know Bagheera, you have to know that about Mowgli too. So that's kind of that was one thing that upon this most recent viewing kind of fell apart for me a little bit. Yeah, but keep something in mind. The reason why some of them were so surprised to hear that there's a man cub, like the pachyderms, uh, the AM Dawn Patrol, they were like, hey, "There's no man club in my in my you know my patrol," and they seemed so surprised. That was basically because the wolves raised him 
sort of in seclusion. I mean, they were protecting him. Otherwise, right. he, he couldn't have lived on his own. I sort of was given the idea that he was, like I said, he was sort of hidden from everybody. I do agree with that. And a lot of them, remember, a lot of them didn't want him there because they, they were afraid of man because of man's gun and man's fire. Right, but I, I guess I thought that that was more about Shere Khan than anything else. I guess that I thought that everybody kind of knew Mowgli was there and just hidden. They, but apparently they really didn't know altogether that he's he's been living here for 10 years. They did say 10 uh, in the beginning, Bagheera narrates 10 times the rain have Rains have come and gone, and Mowgli was found as an infant. So we can kind of deduce that he's ten years old, on or about. Right. Um, but I mean, th to me, we we you know we talked about the Little Mermaid last week, and there were a lot of instances where I said, you know what, most of this makes sense, but here's sort of a plot hole, and this makes sense, but here's sort of a plot hole. Walking away from this. I'm biased towards this the way you're biased towards Little Mermaid. I don't walk away from this feeling the same way where there's many plot holes at all. I think we're flipping the script this week because I found a lot of holes with it. And I do love this movie. I didn't, you know, we said last week Little Mermaid is my absolute favorite, favorite Disney movie. Um, but that's not to say that I didn't watch this. And I don't think it has anything to do with that, you know, obviously I was a little girl and I was more identifying with the princesses and I think that the jungle book you know boys tend to gravitate towards this more um this was my brother's movie so we watched it a ton in our house growing up so I've seen it a thousand times but I just never I don't know I think that this is one of those things where you look at it a little differently with adult eyes and there are some things that I'm questioning now that I didn't when I was a kid but for example for example, well, like I said, the uh, what kind of threw me was that Mowgli seemed like a surprise to everybody. Um, but Mowgli himself, actually, let's uh, let's talk about that. He wants to stay in the jungle, but to me, it's kind of unclear why. Because as they go on this journey where Bagheera is taking him to the man village, they encounter all these different characters, which I'm sure we're going to delve into more and more. Um, but he tries to be like almost every character that they meet. For example, when he meets up with the AM Dawn Patrol, he wants to be like Colonel Hathi's son and he wants to join the ranks. So he starts marching in line with the elephants. Uh, when he meets Baloo, he wants to be just like him and he starts dancing like him. And then at the end, when he meets the vultures, he starts singing with them and flying like them. So to me, I was kind of like, if he you know, he wants to stay in the jungle, but there's nothing really specific. There's no real specific reason that he wants to stay because there's no group of animals that he's staying with. He's not staying with the wolves. I think if, if he was going to stay with anybody, it would probably be Baloo. And I'm sure we're going to talk about their relationship a little bit more, but I feel like he's just so easily led from group to group, but there's not a reason to want to be like any one of them. Well, I think the reason why he wants to be like any one of them is because he's going to do anything he can to stay in the jungle. If that means he has to be an elephant, he's going to be an elephant. If that means he has to be a sloth bear, it's going to be, he's going to be a sloth bear. I mean, he, he was raised by the wolves. He was happy to be a wolf. It wasn't his decision that he was going to leave. 
he would have lived his entire life that way. I mean, think about it. If you were the age of 10 and and you were being told by your parents, hey, uh, mommy got a new job and we're going to move away. You're going to move out of the house you grew up in. You're going to move away from your friends. You're going to move away from your school. A lot of kids are heartbroken about that. It's a good point. I'll give you that one. Um, there, there are still some things about Mowgli, though, that I'm, I'm not jiving with. I, I will give you that point, though. You've won that battle. Um, he does outsmart Ka, their first encounter. Um, you know, he's able to push him out of the tree, and uh, Bagheera falls out of the hypnosis, uh, or he, he snaps Bagheera out of, out of uh, Ka's spell. Slaps him in the face. And, 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 he, and Yeah, and yep. he brings him out of it. Um, but the second encounter, Mowgli falls for it. He does get hypnotized by Ka. He listens to his song. He kind of falls into this trance. And the only reason he gets away is because Shere Khan overhears Ka singing. And he distracts Ka. So they have a whole conversation. And that gives Mowgli a chance to kind of wake up, snap out of it, and then get away. Granted, he pushes him out of the tree in the same manner, and that's what unravels Ka and sends him skulking back off into the jungle. Which, by the way, it's clearly that's recycled animation as well. Oh, my God. Because it's literally the same exact thing. There are a couple of frames that do get reused. You're absolutely right. Um, but to me, Mowgli didn't learn anything from that. He, he just managed to escape in the same, same way. So there's, there's, like, no growth of the character. But I think it shows just how naive he is and how they were they were preying on how desperate he was. The entire reason why he ends up in that scenario is because Ka says, trust me, you won't have to leave the jungle. Mowgli doesn't want to leave. He doesn't want to go to the man village. Right, and he wouldn't leave the jungle in that case because he'd be in Ka's digestive tract. But he didn't know that that's what Ka was getting to, obviously. All right. All right, I'll give you that one too. I got one more for you. Okay. Skipping ahead, we're, we're going to... Three nothing, Sean. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, three? Where have you gotten three? Well, you, I, I, I jumped the gun. You haven't finished this one yet. You absolutely jumped the gun. Speaking of, we're going to jump to the end of the movie. Um, when, when Mowgli finally meets Shere Khan, he approaches him right away. He, he walks up to him. But I don't feel like this is an act of bravery. Ugh. Bravery. I think it's an act of stubbornness. He just goes and he's like, I'm not afraid of you. And... You know, he's been told to fear Shere Khan throughout the entire movie. So I, I was kind of like, good on you for going right up to him. But it's not really convincing me that it's because Mowgli is really ready to stare him down. Second to that, Mowgli does eventually defeat Shere Khan by tying a stick of fire to his tail. And Shere Khan is so busy trying to escape it, he ends up just running away into the jungle. I would be, now, this fire is caused when lightning strikes a tree in a really dry part of the jungle. I would be much more impressed if Mowgli made the fire. To me, that would be like, all right, he's ready to go back to the man, man village because he's a man now. He learned how to make fire. So I feel like that might have been a better ending. And to me, in the same way that he got away from Ka, it was just kind of like dumb luck. That's kind of how this happened when he defeats the big villain. With the help of Baloo, I will give him that. But I don't feel like... I, I, I'll, I'll say it. I don't feel like there's a character arc with Mowgli. So I think Mowgli is brave. I think he is determined. 
And I think at that point, he sort of had nothing to lose. Because he had no friends, he had no support, he wasn't going to go back to the man village. That was his that was his staunch opinion. And he wanted to stand up to Shere Khan because he wanted to prove to everybody that he could handle himself in the jungle so that he could stay in the man village. Now, in regards to what you said, how is Mowgli going to know how to make fire? Because he's been raised by wolves. That's the entire point of this movie is He's so inept in the ways of man that he can't survive. If Mowgli could turn around and make fire without being taught how to make fire, what he just proved is, I can last in the jungle. Which, while it's a nice sentiment, it completely destroys the rest of the film. The entire motivation of of the characters in the movie is to get him back to the man village where he can be safe. Right, and then once he gets there... I will give you that one too, but it's like he still didn't learn anything because like, okay, he didn't make the fire himself. He's going to need to learn that. He's going to need some more skills from the man village, but he doesn't make the choice to finally go. He's led there by Baloo and Bagheera, and then a girl bats her eyes at him, and then he's off. So once again, something kind of fell into his lap to make a decision for him. See, I think that the ending of this movie is absolutely perfect. I love the ending of this movie. I do too. I I think it's the perfect passing of the, no pun intended, passing the torch, passing the baton, transitioning him into the man village. But I just wish that Mowgli would have made that decision independently. I don't feel like he really learned anything. You know, it's it's hard. I, I feel like, you know, he just had this whole adventure and... He, he, the reason why he, see, he sees the girl from a distance and the reason why he engages her is because he goes, I just want to get a closer look. I've never seen one before. And yeah, she flirts with him. She bats the eyes. But he has that moment where he's sort of going back and forth. Like, do I go with her or do I go with these guys? And he's looking back and forth between her and Bagheera and Baloo. And from the male perspective, we've all had a friend that was one of the guys and you played baseball with him and you played Nintendo with him and you guys were always going to hang out together and you always had the first guy to get a girlfriend and you never saw him again. And I just feel like you want to talk about a character arc, there's your character arc. Let's not forget Mowgli is only 10 years old. This is when, if, if you really think about If you're really going to dissect it and think about the human mind and human development and what transitions you go through starting at 10, 12, 13 years old and how that molds you into adolescence, Mowgli is primed for that sort of change. And the fact that he's never experienced this at all, I, I just feel like his... It's again, it's it's that that being. How do I put this? Again, it's being naive, but it's it's being exposed. He's exposed. Mowgli has been exposed this entire film, and it touches back to what you said um, with he's going to be an elephant and then he's going to be a bear and then he's going to be a vulture. It's because he's wide open. I think this is just another opportunity where he was wide open. And he was led to go do something. 
But I think this was a decision that he did make. See, and I think this is a point, Jackie, because Mowgli's 10. He's not even really at puberty yet, and you're telling me that he put a hoe before a bro. You know, that actually leads to a very interesting conversation that I was going to save for later, but I think we can have it now. Um, Have at it. This movie is very much a period piece. It's very clear that this movie is a period piece. The book was written in the late 1800s, and... If you, even watching the film as a child, I never looked at that. Like I saw this movie for the first time in 1990, and even as a kid in 1990, watching this movie for the first time, I never thought that the movie took place in 1990. No, and I didn't think the movie took place in 1967. No, I I always knew this movie took place, quote unquote, a long time ago. Right, and and book aside. This, even just the context that Disney put it in, it's it's still... So I, I think I kind of see where you're going with this, and I, I get it, because, yes, they're 10, but they did things earlier back then. Exactly. So, and they all had their sure, roles. She is singing about a husband. And in these, you know, in these, these cultures where everybody sort of has a defined role. And a lot of people feel like maybe this movie doesn't translate well to modern times and we're we'll talk about we'll talk about the um the live action remake next week and how maybe there were alterations made so that it could cater to today's audience but you have 1967 filmmakers making a film that really is set at this point well over 100 years ago you're talking 120 years ago the roles of men and women, especially in sort of those, I don't want to say aborigine tribes, but even certain Middle Eastern cultures today, whether we believe in it or not, whether we agree with it or not, is not what we're debating, but it's fact. There were roles that were defined separate from what your opinion of that role is. And I feel like that's sort of where you can defend a 10-year-old thinking that way. But I also think that's where you can defend this entire film for those who say that the movie is insensitive. I don't think it's insensitive if you're trying to make it sort of accurate. As accurate as accurate as you can make an animated film with talking and singing animals, I I think that there is... There is a room for defense if you're willing to see the other side. No, you're right. And just as far as making the story work, it doesn't necessarily matter what the culture is, what you believe or not. It does make it work for the, work for the story. So, okay, fine. What are you up to? Four? Four points now? Yeah, I'm not going to take my fifth because there was no question that led to that. I just went on a tangent. That you know, I think proved there, the point. there was no fifth. I'll I'll give you that one. You you debunked everything that I had. I still here's the thing. I I still personally don't know if I find Mowgli as likable. Um, for me, what makes this entire movie is the rest of the supporting ca- characters. Yeah. So you have you have Bagheera, who's who's sort of got that. Um, that wise elder feel to him, but 
He is so well-intended. He's very smart. He cares so much for Mowgli, almost as if he had raised him on his own. I actually disagree with that one as well. Um, He keeps leaving him. He keeps telling him, like, all right, well, if you're so smart, do it yourself. And not, like, in a tough love kind of way. He keeps leaving him on his own. And then he'll hear something go off in the jungle. That's the thing. It appears that Bagheera is getting very far, and then he takes, like, three leaps, and he's back to Mowgli's side coming to the rescue. I think he does love him. There's no doubt about that. Otherwise, why would he be taking him on this journey? Why does he keep going back? But it, it's not exactly in a tough love kind of way. I I don't know. There, there's something that's not sitting well with me that he keeps leaving him with all these people. And he's like, all right, if you know better, just do it yourself. Mm-hmm. The entire movie, though, I will say the music is great. We'll talk about that in a minute. The entire movie exists because of Baloo. Yes. Baloo is this entire film. And the way that Phil Harris played him was absolutely outstanding. Yeah, Baloo is up there with one of the greatest Disney characters of all time. He's so lovable. He's so much fun. And, uh, you know, he really does care for Mowgli. And the thing, he's relatable because everybody knows a Baloo. To me, actually, Baloo, forgetting that this has since been remade, Baloo is like either Matthew McConaughey or Jimmy Buffett to me. He's like the Jimmy Buffett of the jungle. And it's funny that you say that because when I was thinking, uh, who, who can I relate this to now? Other than everybody has a family member that's like this, that's kind of that you know, carefree sort of bum that just, what I said was he's a carefree bum who just wants a good scratch and a nap. And you know who that reminds me of? Murray Goldberg. Wow. Wow. For those of you who watch the Goldbergs on ABC, and if you don't, you should because it's fantastic. Not just because it's ABC. This show is hilarious. It is. I think it's the funniest show on television right now. I think it blows everything out of the water. I don't think it's even close. Murray Goldberg is Baloo. Yeah. He totally is. Um, King Louie is a lot of fun. And Louie Prima was just the absolute. wanted this so bad that he showed up at the soundstage with his entire band and basically did a performance that, that turned into I Want to Be Like You. That's one of my favorite numbers in the home. I mean, there's not a lot in comparison to more recent films. There's not a lot of musical numbers. But to me, I actually like I want to be like you more so than the bare necessities. I think it's a more fun number. Um, I think the lyrics are so smart. Um, Sherman Brothers wrote this. And uh, to me, this is one of their best. Yes. We'll we'll get back to that in just a second, because we're going to have a whole conversation about the music. I'm I'm totally sure of this. I am. I'm jumping the shark a little that's bit. That's okay. No, that's all right. Um, Ka, Ka's fun. I, I, I was never really scared of Ka. I was always creeped out that Ka could hypnotize you, but I don't find Ka scary so much as I find him fairly good comic relief. Voiced by Sterling Holloway. And if you can get past the fact that Winnie the Pooh is trying to eat a 10-year-old in the jungle... You're really going to like Ka. 
it's so jarring for me the first time he opens his mouth because I really think that he's going to just straight up ask Mowgli for a small smack roll of honey because <laughs> he didn't. And I don't really mean this in a negative way, but he really didn't change his inflection or delivery that much at all. And if you close your eyes, you really think that Winnie the Pooh is about to strangle a 10 year old boy. Um, but that is what I, I actually really, really like Ka because I think he's, he's hysterical aside from the voicing. He's such a hypochondriac. I know. Like everything it's so is neurotic. My sinuses. Um, that's hilarious to me. And I, I think it's a really smart choice that he's supposed to be creepy. And I think that's why you don't find him scary is because Shere Khan has to be the scariest. Otherwise, you can't really have two villains. Ka is bad, but he's not like a villain villain. Ka's a harmless villain because he really can't ever succeed in actually hypnotizing anyone. He, he either gets thwarted or like, I, I don't know, one of his ailments stops him. But I, I just think it's funny. Shere Khan is a very interesting character because you hear more about him than you actually see of him in this movie. But from the moment he comes on screen, you know he's just pure concentrated evil. They did a really good job of creating some fear of the unknown by having all of the characters talk about him and fear him before we actually see him. When you see him for the first time, He's in that crouch position, and he's slowly, methodically getting ready to attack that fear. You, you, it, it, in, a, in, a, in a moment where you have a character who's not even said a word, the animation is phenomenal in this movie. I mean, the animation is just fantastic. Bagheera is very cat-like, as is Shere Khan. It looks very natural. But just the way that he gets that look on his face and he dips his shoulders down, and he kind of digs his claws in. It's like, I'm not going to go so far as to saying it's like watching Nat Geo or the Discovery Channel, but it's pretty close. It's so well done. There's not a spoken word, but in that moment, you know exactly who Shere Khan is. Yeah, they really did do a beautiful job with the animation on this. You can tell that they really, really studied animals. Um, and I, I think that that's something like even later in the Lion King, like you can see how they really, really finessed it by the time that we got there. And that that's something I'm excited to look at down the road is to compare the animation style of these different animals. But um, back to Shere Khan, uh, I mean, you said it last week. I do have an affinity for my Disney villains. Um, I love the way that Shere Khan was portrayed. Um, I, I think it was a great marriage of the, the voice actor and the animators to create this character because he's so, even like how well-spoken he is, is kind of scary. He reminds me of a James Bond villain. Yeah, like just very, uh, and I don't think that has to do with the fact that he's, He's kind of like English sounding, but he's just like very proper and very methodical. And I think that that's what makes him so creepy is because he's smart. You can tell he's, you know, from the jump that he's very smart. Yeah, he's wildly intelligent and, and everything he does is with purpose. And he has, similar to Ursula, 
And I think you're going to see this a lot with Disney villains. He's got that arrogance to him. Yeah. But, but, you know, it, but it works for the character. Yes. It works for the character. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, two of my favorite groups of animals in this movie. The comic relief would be the AM drill team and the vultures. Um, for Colonel Hathi's group of elephants, so good. I think that's the personification of, of a uh, drill sergeant was brilliant. Uh, it just works for the herd of elephants. Um, I think that for somebody who gets very little screen time, the character of Colonel Hathi gets developed really nicely because he goes and he, you know, nitpicks at every single one of his troop. Um, and then there's a really, really great uh, instance of comic relief where um, Bagheera goes back to them the second time when Mowgli's lost and he he approaches Colonel Hathi for help. Um, Colonel Hathi's wife, Winifred, um, can, is is who ultimately convinces Colonel Hathi to help Bagheera um, because she said, what if that was our son out there? Um, Their son, who is voiced by Clint Howard, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, you know him from Apollo 13, you know him from Austin Powers, and he's Ron Howard's little brother. Fun little bit of uh, Disney trivia there. But the, uh, the other interesting bit of trivia is that this is uh, one of very few... Uh, Female spoken lines in this movie. Really, the only other one is the girl at the end when she's singing her song. Um, it, what's interesting, though, is that in real life, uh, females lead the elephant herds. So here you have a male doing it. And, it, you know, it's just a good little comic relief section that really she is leading Colonel Hathi to to what they're going to do. And she makes this decision for him. So, it you know, it's it's just like a funny little throwaway line i love the am dawn patrol i love their little march i love their song yes they are very funny but they serve a purpose in the film yeah they're they're not just there for like a cheap laugh or a cheap gag there was um there was a rhino that was supposed to be in this movie uh rocky the rhino and he was just ridiculous like there was there was no purpose for him and and that's why they cut him uh they serve a purpose in this film and you you see them a couple of times throughout, and they're just they're a fun group. Absolutely, yeah. No, I, I that's that's probably one of my favorite. Uh, you know, it's like a good little breather piece in the movie whenever the elephants show up. Yeah. Uh, the other comic relief group that does serve a bigger purpose in this movie is yes. the vultures. Yes. Um, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot to say on them. Um. If you know a little bit of uh, insight into this movie is that uh, these four vultures, you can you can tell there's definitely a Beatles influence, but they actually did try and get the Beatles to voice the characters in this movie. Um, I believe it was because Lennon didn't really want to do it. Yeah, John and... Lennon didn't want to do animation, and a couple of years later it comes out with Yellow Submarine. <laughs> That's another story for another day. But I, I believe there were also some scheduling conflicts as well. But I can kind of see um, at the time, Disney was not what it's known for now. And in almost every movie now, you get name A-list talent. If not A-list, at least B-list. You know, you, you do get like a big name 
and now, you know, in, in more recent years, you get several per movie. Um, for its time, though, this was like the first, I don't want to say all-star cast, but they really did have like the big talent of their time in this movie. Um, yeah, and this was really the first time that they went out and got that many A-listers to do this. Right. The Beatles would have put it over the top. Yeah. Um, But because of, you know, Lennon not wanting to do it, and I think they also did have some sort of scheduling conflict, uh, they didn't get them. But you can still see just based from that mop-top haircut and the voices, The too, Liverpool accents. Yeah. It's clearly the Beatles. Right, and it went from being, uh, that's what Friends are for, went from being um, a rock song to being that uh, that barbershop quartet. We keep talking about the music, so I think it's time that we should move on and talk about the, mu- the music of this movie. Let's not move on from that song, though, because no. you just said it. They went from having, and actually, it's really, really cool if you're able to dig it up. They do have this recording where... Uh, where it still sounds like a Beatles song. You, I mean, you can clearly hear the influence in there. And it's cool, and it it makes the tune kind of upbeat. But I think doing away with that, Beatles aside, is the smartest thing that they could have done. Um, they said that Walt himself cut it because it wasn't, uh, it would have it would have dated the film. And, you know, you would have associated the film with being in that era. But to me, hearing the recording where it sounds like an upbeat rock song, I think it takes you out of the scene that you're in because it's so lively and here you are in like this and dark part of the jungle. There's not a lot of water there. There's no water. actually. There's no light. That's how it ignites. Exactly. That's why the vultures are there. Um, so I think it, it just brings you right out of it. But doing that barbershop quartet, I think is so much smarter because the vultures sing the song. They get Mowgli to join in on a fifth part harmony, and then Shere Khan finishes it. So if you had the yeah. actual movie, the actual music behind it, there wouldn't have been that brilliant transition where you throw to Shere Khan and all of a sudden he's there. He's been hiding out. He's been listening the entire time, and that's how he reveals himself. It doesn't matter how many times I've watched this movie, and it doesn't matter how old I get. Every time Shere Khan comes in and finishes that song, I get chills. Chills like scared chills yeah, or like chills you know, because he's singing it well? No, scared chills. Like, you know, now Shere Khan has arrived. Something's about to happen. And see, I just think <laughs> that's really funny to me that you're like scared of this. Because I, I, I almost think it's a little bit of like a comic relief to introduce him that way because it so lends to the character. Like we were saying, like he comes off as this very like proper kind of meticulous guy. And then he just like nails the ending of the song. And it's just so funny. And to me, like I said, it, it adds to the character because he's singing, you know, he's not supposed to be singing along with you. You know, he's dangerous. So you really don't know what he's going to do next. And I think it really lends to him being so unpredictable. And I, it, it I, does make you feel unsafe, though. I think there's more malice behind it than that. But maybe that's just me. Um, what I love about the music in this movie is that it plays very well with the on-screen actions. Yes. Um, for example, when Mowgli and Baloo are play fighting, and they're showing Baloo as he's kind of teaching him how to box. It's a lot of like bass drums and 
and tubas because you have this really big, uh, let's just call it a big fat sloth bear. And then you cut to Mowgli and it's like they're hitting little pipes. You know what I'm saying? Like it just, it, it, it was, uh, it was a very nice, um, representation of the characters through, through sound. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and when they're scratching themselves against the trees and they kind of go with like a maraca during, um, uh, the bare necessities and they, you know, they have the little scratch almost like somebody's playing like, um, a what washboard. is it like a washboard? Yeah. Like it's just, I, I think it is so brilliant. It's a, it's a little touch that I think goes, goes a really long way. It really is one of the most clever songs. And then to it, it gets to the point where, uh, Baloo's like scratching against a rock and then he kind of like dips into the river and then they're just kind of floating along. You still have the music underneath and it's still part of the Bear Necessity song in the sequence, but uh, it just changes the tone right before the monkeys get him. Right. But it comes back in so brilliantly. Uh, this was a song. This is the only song in the film that was not written by the Sherman brothers. It was written by Terry Gilkison. Now, Terry Gilkison had written basically the entire the entire soundtrack for this film when it was a much darker movie. You right. know, originally this movie was written to be um closer to um the Kipling book, a, a closer adaptation. But Walt feared that children weren't going to like it, maybe it would be too scary or too over their heads, so he, he sort of canned everything and and started from scratch, but this was the song that all the animators and everybody that was working on the film at the time had said, you've got to keep. Um, it's just this, it's a fun Dixieland sort of song. Like I, I can, I can hear it like almost in new Orleans. Um, which, and if you know a lot about Walt Disney, you know, that, that city in particular had a great influence on his life. Um, the lyrics are very clever in a way. They're sort of basic, but, you know, they're not as, say, sophisticated as part of your world. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the lesson learned is just as strong. Absolutely. But I, I also think that that lends to the song is because it is sort of stripped down. But the song is about the bare necessities. It's nothing excess. It's just you have what you need and you're happy with it and you want for nothing. So I, I'm wondering if that was done intentionally to just keep the lyrics simple. And Baloo's a simple guy. Exactly. Baloo's very simple in his mindset. He's sort of simple in his vocabulary. Um, but I think that you you learn as a child listening to this song that as long as you have what you need to get by, you'll be okay. The other stuff is nice, but you'll be okay. And maybe it's it's okay to not keep up with the Joneses, not have the newest video game, not have the newest car. Because as long as you have what you have and it's enough to get by and you can be happy with that, you'll live a very happy life. And it also taught me that um, that if I pick a prickly pear by the paw, you know, that I shouldn't <laughs> pick. I should not pick a prickly pear by the paw. If I pick a pear, try to use the, the claw. claw. But I won't need to use the claw if I pick a pear from the big paw paw. <laughs> Baloo was totally your early Jimmy Buffett. Absolutely. This Baloo is a slippery slope for you. And actually, a lot of his dialogue was uh, improv by Phil Harris. And actually, this song 
when they wrote it and he was recording it and, and the same thing goes with his with his dialogue he pretty much said this isn't how i would say this you know if i'm going to do this can i do it how i would do it and he flew off the handle a lot kind of went off the cuff and and they kept most of it in the film because his portrayal of this character was brilliant I think he made Baloo a lot more laid back. I, I don't want to say he made him sarcastic, but when he started throwing in like the, uh, not boxing terminology per se, because they do still keep it simple so that kids can understand. Um, I, I think that the actor really did bring a lot to Baloo though, and making him what he is. And I, I, what I really like about the bare necessities um, and what I like about, I want to be like you in both of those scenes where you start to see Bagheera kind of rolling his eyes and putting his hand on his head and then sort of getting involved in the action and interacting with Baloo more. It develops their relationship, which really becomes Bagheera is the perfect straight man and he's the perfect foil for Baloo. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. If actually like that would be, a great spinoff. I would love to see like a buddy comedy with Baloo and B Bagheera. Um, what's interesting about that though, um, if you look into uh, the behind the scenes a little bit more, is that the two animators who worked on them, Frank and Ollie, um, they put a lot of themselves and their own friendship into Baloo and Bagheera. And Baloo and Mowgli as well. Yes. And that sort of, I don't know, see, Baloo to me was always kind of more of like the fun, fun uncle, uh, but Mowgli does refer to him as Papa Bear, but either way, it's it's such a good, uh, Baloo's like the perfect sidekick and the perfect buddy. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the next song, literally minutes after the Bear Necessities, is I Want to Be Like You, which was written by the Sherman Brothers, performed by Louis Prima. It's an outstanding swing number. Yeah. I think you had the right actor for the part because Louis Prima was the king of swing. Mm -hmm. And if you go back and listen to any of that old Louis Prima stuff, it's like it's so clear that nobody had as much fun recording music at that time than Louis Prima. I believe he said it was his career highlight. Or or that's the thing that was he was probably going to uh be remembered for most, and that was his legacy, was right. was going down as the voice of King Louis. Oh, he really wanted this role. And and thankfully for all of us, it worked out because it's perfect. But what I love so much about this is that you take, you know, the, the caricature of chimpanzees and monkeys is that they're swinging from trees. And you've seen them swinging at the zoo. And if you go to Animal Kingdom, you kind of see them swinging on rope vines and through you know across rope netting so why not make the why not make it a, a swing number right i mean it's just so perfect it is it's a great marriage of music and animation but the lyrics too um yes. this is some really really clever writing and i think we had touched on this last week with the little mermaid that sometimes because the numbers are so big and so theatrical you lose the words a little bit but if you really listen king louis intent it's it's just explained perfectly. Right. Now, he wants to be man. He wants to evolve. He wants to stroll right into town, as he said, and be just like the other men. I'm tired of monkeying around. But I think there's more to it. He's obsessed with the red flower. 
and creating man's fire. Right. And I think a lot of that, they don't come ahead, they don't come out and say it. But he he doesn't want to be in the bottom of the food chain anymore. He wants to be at the top of the food chain. He wants to be where man is. And he has an obsession with fire specifically. And I think a lot of that has to do with he not only wants to be the top of the food chain amongst man, I think he wants to be at the top of the food chain and the top of the hierarchy in the jungle. But he can't do that because of Shere Khan unless he has the red flower. Which is the only can, thing Shere Khan is afraid of. He can control Shere Khan with fire. Very interesting. I never realized that. Good for you. The scat wow. scene, yeah, the scat scene in this in this um, song, completely improv between Phil Harris and uh, Louis Prima. And they they took a couple of days, I think they said two days worth of recording, and they went back and forth at each other. Um, and when they start that little parade of trumpets and they're walking through the ruins, that is a tribute to Louis Prima. Because right. he and his band used to do that during their performances. They'd walk off the stage and they'd start walking around the audience and through the aisles doing this. Yeah. I thought that was a nice little a tip of the cap to Louis Prima, who who clearly they thought very highly of to, to go out of their way to do that and give them that much creativity. I think they um they thought very highly of the whole cast because I feel like so many of them, you know, like we were talking about Harris before, had so much influence on Baloo. Um, I, I think, um, you know, this was a really good creative project for all of them, which, um, I think was important, um, not to bring it down, but I think we have to go there. Um, I think it was really important at the time to have that creative energy amongst all the artists because this was Walt Disney's last movie. Um, this is when Walt got sick during production of this movie and, um, towards the completion of it, um, he was able to sort of rally and go back to the studio to check on the project. Uh, and nobody really knew it was the last time they were going to see him, but, um, you know, this, this movie came out after Walt passed away and it was really the last piece of him that we got. Yeah. Um, Trust in Me um, is the song that Ka sings to Mowgli as he's trying to literally get him to trust in him. Um, it's it's a song that, as a kid, I liked it enough. It certainly is not my favorite song of the movie. It's still not my favorite song of the film. I think it does serve a purpose. Um, I think that it's, it's sort of... Um, Again, it's it's very. Uh, I'm trying to I, I, again. I'm trying to find the words. It's it's very intentional. That's what it is. It's very intentional with its message. I think that he's he's tr he's very much trying to manipulate the boy, and I think that he's trying to play on how naive Mowgli is and how desperate he is. And I think that's why the I think that's why the song is very important for the movie and why I think it does belong. Like I said, of the three or of the four, really, when you when you think about um, that's what friends are for, it falls to the bottom of my list personally. But it doesn't make it bad. But I do think it is a necessity. 
Yeah, agreed. It doesn't really do anything for me, but you needed something there. I think if Ka was doing his hypnosis and there was a sound effect, it would have cheapened it. Um, I also think that it wouldn't have played well against once they break the hypnosis and he falls out of the tree and uncoils. That's where the sound effects come in. So I think that would have been too jarring against each other. I, you needed to give him something. Yeah. Um, and I think it works that there's not really a lot of music underneath it. It's it's just like these low tones um, that I think it works culturally for where the the movie is set. But it's nothing that's going to distract you too much from what he's saying. Um, yeah, it, it all works, but I can kind of like take it or leave it. And it's it's a recycled melody from um, from Mary Poppins. It was yes. a song that was supposed to be a Mary Poppins, not with those lyrics, of course, but the melody. And it was cut from the film, and they were able to reuse it in this film. Um, I think that to this day, now this movie holds up. I think it does. I think that uh, the relationships amongst the characters are phenomenal. I think the characters themselves are great. I think their songs are great. I think the storyline is easy to follow, but it doesn't come off as being boring. I, I still find it to be fun. And I think that the slapstick comedy is very well timed when it's needed, and it's not overdue at all. Or sorry, it's not overdone at all. Agreed. Um, you know, like I said, there were some things that I noticed upon this viewing and maybe because I knew we were going to be talking about it. Maybe I was watching it admittedly a little bit more critically than I normally would. Um, but I do think that part of it is I haven't watched it in a long time. And there are some things that I'm noticing now that I didn't necessarily question when I was a kid. Um, it definitely still all works. Does it hold up? Um, a thousand percent. It's still a fun movie. And I think that, uh, Animation-wise and character-wise, this is some of Disney's finest work. And I don't say that just because it was his last film. Um, in fact, it does. And I, and I don't want to say too much because, honestly, talking about Disney's last film like does give me a lump in my throat. Like I don't think that we've said enough how much we love, both of us, love and respect this man and everything that he's done. Um, but I, I, it's a shame that this is where it ended because I can only imagine what else he would have brought forth. But I think if, if, if he's going to go out on anything, I mean, this is a high note for him. Yeah. Um, this has him written all over it. I mean, this is a Walt Disney film. Yeah. This isn't a Disney movie. This is a Walt Disney film. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, if you're interested in a little bit more of the behind the scenes, um, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, you know, if you have, the uh, DVD Blu-ray combo, check out the special features because it does delve into um, a lot of Walt's input into the story. Um, it's, it's interesting to see what was cut from this film and the choices that he made. Uh, I think, you know, if you're interested in, in animation and story and those kinds of things, this is a really great, um, it's a great tool to to kind of see a little bit of the method to his madness. And uh, we're going to talk next week about the Favreau remake. But interesting to point out that the Favreau remake came a year or two ago. 
we talk about how we talk about how these movies they they come back around in cycles, right? So 25, 24, 25 years after this movie made its theatrical release. And I remember being a kid and my mother telling me when we were going to go see this and she showed me, you know, used to, for those of, for those kids that are listening, uh, you used to have to go into your newspaper to get your movie times. There was a whole section that had the movie times and they used to have movie posters or screen grabs from the film. And I remember I was getting ready to go to bed one night and she came into my room and she was tucking me in and she had the newspaper and she pointed at it and she goes, we're going to go see this movie tomorrow. And I didn't know anything about the movie except she pointed at the picture of Baloo and Mowgli and I just had this this like dumb grin on my face because it visually it was um, it was enticing for, for a kid. Mm-hmm. And you knew you're going to see, it's called The Jungle Book, you know it's going to be that adventure movie. Um, the movie had a theatrical re-release. It gets released on VHS. Right after that, Tailspin comes out as a part of the Disney afternoon. And you right. have Baloo as a pilot. And Louie owned like a bar. It was like a, it was like a Jock Lindsay's hangar bar yeah. that Louie owned. So that comes out around the time that this movie starts to make a resurgence. Fast forward another 25 years. Now we have the live action remake. This is another film that's cycled through. And I think yeah. you're going to continue to see this. I, I don't, I don't think this will ever stop. Spin it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But we have uh, also some interesting news and rumors from the week. Okay. Um, so interestingly enough, since last week's episode was little mermaid, uh, Disney announced that they are going to premiere under the seas, a descendant story. So it's going to be a new live action short form special premiering on Friday, September 28th. Um, it is going to star Dove Cameron and China and McLean who are reprising the roles as Mal and Uma for those of you descendants fans. Uh, then we have Christy Carlson Romano and Patton Oswalt, uh, have been announced to join the uh, cast of the Disney Channel original movie, Kim Possible. They're doing a live-action Kim Possible. Um, and this is more on a personal note, but it's news that makes me happy one nonetheless. Uh, Club Mickey Mouse, which launched on Disney Digital Network last September, is adding former Mouseketeer and in sinker J.C. Chazé as a mentor in the upcoming back-to-school special. Big sync fan right here. So this just gave me the woman fuzzies that he's going back to the mouse. And then I think it was D23 that had released uh, one of the first promotional photos from the Mulan live-action film that we were just talking about next week. And they had the actress in the in the outfit um, with the katana. She looks very convincing. She does, yeah. Uh, it's all over Instagram. Uh, that, that was where I had seen it, but it was on like the D23 Instagram. Uh, and I think um, the Walt Disney Studios, it was all over the place. Um, so you can... Definitely see that if you're interested. But uh, yeah, she looks good. Yep. I'm excited to see what else they're doing. Well, thank you guys for joining us this week. It was a pleasure as always. We will be back next week to compare and contrast this uh, version of The Jungle Book with the Jon Favreau live action version. Did we like it? Did we not like it? You're going to find out next week. In the meantime, make sure to like our Facebook page, uh, follow us on Twitter. We're everywhere right now. 
We're, we're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on Google Play Store, Podbean. You know, believe me, we're, we're on every format for everybody. Uh, we're, we're, we're hard to miss at this point. Uh, so for Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies. The stuff dreams are made of.